Alright, should we uh, pick up in James where we left off? Let me turn there. I'm sorry? I don't think we'll ever get out of James. Maybe not, but we're getting we the light at the end of the tunnel is uh, visible. <laughs> Chapter three, the taming of the tongue. Yeah. Yeah, this helps uh, speed the class along when it's tame the tongue. So that's chapter 3 of James. Now, he's already mentioned, and this is one of the things we've seen to get in James, is he weaves his themes almost in and out and in and out from one another in a pattern. And one of the things we've already talked about is he, he has things to say about taming the tongue already. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 19, for example, remember he admonishes the congregation, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, etc. And then later on to be uh, then not only hearers of the word, but doers also. So you have the admonition of quick to hear, slow to speak. And here in chapter 3, verse 1, then you have a similar theme fleshed out. Chapter 3, verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now the teaching or teacher or office of teacher that James has in mind is the pastoral office. And uh, so James here has... Uh, doesn't have in mind <clears throat> elementary school teachers or uh, Miss Jones, the history teacher. Does that mean that just pastors should teach, or can other people in the congregation teach Bible? Yeah, in in a broad sense, of course they can. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the formal public teaching or proclamation, what we would call preaching, what happens in there is is uh, the pastoral office. But when Christians individually or, or privately or, uh, and, and privately I just mean they represent themselves, uh, of course they can. For example, in Acts you had uh, both Priscilla and Aquila, husband and wife, going out and evangelizing and teaching and preaching for women to teach other women a Bible class or lead a devotion or all of that's fine. It's just where you have the, the public teaching of the church that's restricted to pastors in scripture. And so when he says, um, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, he's saying to, uh, to these Christians, not many of you ought to become pastors. Just because you're a Christian, don't aspire to be a pastor. And then he gives some of the rationale for why. Um, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now what are some bad reasons people might want to become pastors? Glory? Glory? Oh, yeah, money, career <laughs> advancement. You'd be shocked, but, but the fact of the matter is, is you do find men who are enticed by the pastoral office because they say, look, I can work at Walmart for uh, 20000 a year. I can go be a pastor for 30000 It's a pay raise. And so they do enter the seminary thinking of it in terms of a career choice, thinking of it in terms of money and finances and supporting a family. Well, there are two-year courses you can take. Well, you're right. Outside of the LCMS, yeah. you know, I think you can get ordained online in an hour yeah. and then start doing weddings, yeah. which a lot of people do out here, you know, you know, or, or yeah, weddings or uh, funerals. Funeral, uh, I confuse the two often, um, but the, <laughs> I'm just teasing, the, you know, the funerals are particularly lucrative. If you're a captain and you own a boat, 
you get an online ordination, you know, you get the right licenses, all of a sudden you can start to do burials at sea and collect a hefty fee for that. People do that. So uh, to become pastors or teachers, as it's put here, um, people can do this for many very wrong reasons, not realizing that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And that's one of the liabilities you take upon yourself as you become a pastor. And why? Is because you're presuming to teach, that's, that's the basis of the office, is you are teaching in the place of God, in the stead and by the command of God. So whatever you teach, you're teaching, the assumption is that you're teaching God's word. And this is what's especially toxic. If Joel Osteen would just give his happy, clappy stuff, uh, we wouldn't care. But he has to say it's in the name of God and he has to call himself a pastor because if he didn't, no one else would care either. But since he does that, now people listen. Now, Joel Osteen doesn't realize this maybe, but he is going to be judged with a greater strictness and he is going to be judged on the basis of his faithfulness to God's word and uh, whether or not he taught uh, and administered the sacraments correctly according to the office. Do you think in James' time there was any kind of formal training? Yes. You do? Mm -hmm. Yes. In fact... Uh, James is a contemporary, uh, basically, with John, the youngest of the disciples uh, who laid on Jesus' breast, who, the only one who was there at the cross. And John wrote, um, of course, his gospel. And we think also it's the same John who wrote Revelation and the three epistles that bear his name. We know for a fact, have historical record, uh, that John taught pastors and instructed them and uh, we can see the line from John to the next to the next, and in, now we're in the early church era. So by simply saying that this is how it worked with John, we, we can assume that this is how, but, but we see it elsewhere too. With, with Paul, he had Timothy and Titus. There's training. He's officially trained them and discipled them and brought them into the pastoral office and uh, then puts them in congregations. And so you see it with Paul, you see it with John. It's the I likelihood. One, one thing. Well, I don't know that it, no, I, I would, well, maybe, maybe, I mean, and, but it's, it's a whole church and it's a whole pastor and it's a whole ministry, you know, pastors are made in, in Christ's church under ideal circumstances, you're not made a pastor by one man, but you're made a pastor by the whole church and ministry together, and so there's a, there's a collectivity in the formation of a man into pastor, and there's a collectivity in the acknowledgement that this man is fit and there's a, there's a collectivity in, in the calling of that man into the office. We describe those two things as, as uh, called and ordained. And maybe the clearest way to think about this is um, you, are, you are ordained by the ministerium, that's by the pastors who say, yes, we've tested this man's theology, and that's what they do at the seminary. Uh, at the very end, you have a theological interview. You sit down with two professors, and they can ask you any question under the sun. You have a theological interview. And then the whole faculty has to also approve you, right? So uh, the whole faculty has an opportunity to, uh, your name comes up, and the entire faculty of the school, if, you know, if you've had one bad row with a professor, he can stand up and speak against you. Sometimes that's a badge of honor. So, uh, <laughs> I shouldn't. 
<laughs> I shouldn't go into that. Um, but, you know, uh, professors aren't infallible either, but the nice thing is you have a ministerium and you have a, uh, a group of, of ordained clergy professors who are there, and they all basically say, yes, this man is fit for ordination. And then the ordination um, aspect takes place when the pastors lay their hands uh, upon the pastor and what they're doing is publicly ratifying the call and they're showing that the entire ministry of the church, not just, not just one man, but the entire ministry of the church approves of this man, approves of his training and finds him fit. Now if he proves himself to be unfit, it's that same ministry that stands behind his removal. So that's one aspect. And then the other aspect, and, and maybe the chief aspect, is the call of a congregation. So people said you know, to me, and they asked me occasionally, um, when did you know that you wanted to be a pastor? And the best theological answer is, as soon as I determined to accept the call to Faith Lutheran Church. Because you see, as the scriptures say, a man who desires to be the task of an overseer desires a noble thing, but at the end of the day, you just desire it. And it can't be taken on the basis of your desiring. Like, I desire a car, okay, I might, if I have the funds, go buy a car. But if I desire anything, I might go take it. But it's not that way with the pastoral office. If you desire it, you can't take it. You can simply say, I desire it. I'll agree to go to seminary. I'll train for it. Um, but you have to be found fit. And you have to be called. Otherwise, otherwise you're no call. external call. Call and a, and a concrete call. Call from, from a congregation like faith that says, we want you to be our pastor. Without that, God doesn't want you to be a pastor. You may want to be a pastor, but God doesn't want that. Uh, how God calls is very concretely through his church and through a congregation that says, we want you to be our pastor. Now you know God is calling you. Now as an individual, you can say, uh, no thanks, <laughs> I'm going to go do something else. That's fair. Or you can accept that call and uh, then become a pastor. So I didn't know that God wanted me to be a pastor until call night at the seminary when I received a call from Faith Lutheran Church. Then I know that God was calling me to be a pastor through a congregation. Then I knew I wanted to be a pastor when I said yes. Um, so all the other stuff of what happens in your heart and oh, I felt like God was speaking to me and all this other stuff ultimately is immaterial. And really, men don't think very clearly or, or uh, spiritually about it at all because they would just simply conclude that I desire this. God isn't immediately telling me outside of Scripture that I need to be a pastor. I desire this thing until I have a concrete physical call. Then I know God actually desires it here in this place, if that helps. I was going to add and see if this isn't correct. I mean, uh, the training was done through these epistles. Imagine the church in Rome getting that letter that Phoebe carried in. You know, the, I mean, just packed with uh, with you know theology, and uh, it was corrective. You know, it was like your pastor's going off stream, and then it was real time correction. It's kind of like a, a sailboat, I guess. So they didn't sit and have seminaries where books and so forth and commentary. They went through it all, and then they were. It was kind of like calling on the fly and then it was mid-course corrections and uh, those epistle letters that came into the various churches were uh, I would think would be would be one of the teaching tools yeah you have you have Christians that are converted and catechized and then of those men some show themselves uh, to have the aptitude for the office they continue to be trained and mentored by pastors and at that time living apostles 
and then they serve in the church and do likewise. And that's really the origin of the pastoral office. It's flowing from the apostolic office. But it's, it's, more of a, it's always more of a group or a corporate activity in the church, even in the early church, than it ever is like a one-on-one -on -one mentoring thing. It's, it's rarely that. What about Amelia that, uh, you know, Paul was under his teaching? Yes, and Gamaliel would have taught uh, several pupils, but of course that being in, the, in Judaism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But then I was thinking, I for one, you know, really love the Apostle Paul because I feel like he knew, you know, a lot of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And so it's just yes. exciting. Absolutely. And yeah. even Concordia had a pastor that back 54, 54 years ago. Uh, I begged Larry to go hear him speak. And then we had the honor and the privilege of hearing him at the Concordia just about three years ago. And this man had coal black hair, and now he had white hair. And his wife always came to the seminars with him. Mm -hmm. And she was there up there at Concordia. Oh. And it was just, it was oh, that's wonderful. Very, very interesting. But I always thought, just love the Apostle Paul. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So uh, we recognize then that um, a warning that not many should become teachers. And Paul also says, uh, don't lay hands on a man hastily. That means don't ordain a man hastily. Don't bring someone into the pastoral office hastily. Uh, he needs to be uh, well-educated and catechized in the faith because he's going to face many trials and temptations, not least of which maybe the chief of all of them is pride and arrogance that then leads to false teaching. So, um, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Again, Paul talks about this in detail in 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 3, where he talks about, um, he's talking about the pastoral office, and he, talk, he uh, talks about the pastoral office as being those who build upon a house. No other, no other who build a house. No other foundation can be laid except that which is Christ Jesus, right? And then how one builds upon that house. Is it with gold and silver and precious stones? Or is it with wood, hay, and stubble? Wood, hay, and stubble you can build very fast and make a visually impressive edifice in no time at all. Um, gold, silver, and precious stones, that takes time. But Paul says that that man's work will be tested by fire. Okay? And the fire obviously will consume what? Wood, hay, and stubble, but not gold, silver, and precious stones. Those are fireproof. So we can have no other foundation but Christ. So if a man has another foundation but Christ, he's not going to be judged in that way. He's going to be judged as an unbeliever. But let's say there's a believing pastor, uh, and he has the foundation that is Christ, but then let's say he builds upon that nothing but wood, hay, and stubble. Paul says that he will survive, he will be saved, and yet as one who has passed through fire, one who sees his whole life, work, and ministry consumed and judged unworthy and burned away, so that nothing remains but the foundation of Christ that he has, and he's saved, and yet as one that passes through fire. So when James says, um, you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, that's exactly what he's talking about. And, he, and pastors must give an account of their stewardship in God's house, of their stewardship of his word and his uh, sacraments. Okay? 
Questions on that? All right, then verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So if a person can bridle the tongue, he can bridle his whole body. That's the point. And James is saying, not saying that this perfect man exists, for we all stumble in many ways, right? If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to also bridle the whole body. But who is the perfect man? Christ. Who is the one who doesn't stumble in word? Christ. Or stumble in his body? Christ. So again, here we see James alluding to Christ and pointing us, as it were, to Christ. Because all of us are inferior. Um, we're all going to stumble in many ways, but particularly with our lips. Christ himself never stumbles with his lips. Then he goes on in verse 3 to make some comparisons. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. So the point is, taking this massive animal like a horse, and you're directing it about by its mouth. Little tiny thing directing all great big things, right? That's how a bit works. Then he says, look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So again, you have this great big thing, this ship, uh, being guided by a little tiny rudder. Right around chapter 3, verse 4, and now 5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet boasts of great things. So, in other words, the tongue pushes around the entire human being. And often, and here's his point, here's his preaching of the law, that it is the tongue that uh, moves us into boasting. And then he says, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. So you think about that, now you've got this massive thing, not like a horse, not like a ship, but like a forest, and you see that the little tiny thing that directs the horse, the little tiny thing that directs the ship, and the little tiny thing that can burn the entire forest. Now if you're reflecting on this as a pastor, it's especially poignant to realize to take care of what you speak, to be quick to hear and slow to speak, because you realize how much damage your little tongue can do. But while that's certainly true and maybe like uh, emphatically true for pastors, it's, it's also true for every Christian, isn't it? We all have unfortunately seen that some little thing that we say goes off and burns a forest. You know? And sometimes when you let that fire go, boy, you can spend a lot of time trying to put that fire out and it can do a lot of damage before you finally get it out. So the apostle here is showing us... Uh, and I mean apostle in the secondary sense. He's not one of the original apostles. But uh, the apostle James is showing us uh, that the tongue is uh, a fire, as he says. And then he goes on to say, a world of unrighteousness. A world of unrighteousness. All in the tongue. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body. Tongue stains the whole body. Setting on fire the entire course of this life. And set on fire by hell. It's the powers of hell, uh, the devil, the world, our own sinful nature, 
light the tongue on fire and the tongue lights our entire lives on fire. And so, you know, the point of James is as you listen to this, as you reflect on it, as you think of times in your life, times of your own inability to control your tongue, you would say, he's right. When confronted with the law, that's what we do. We say, he's right. I've noticed that same thing in me. Then verse 7, For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. Which is a remarkable thing, isn't it? Of all the things that we can do, all the wonderful, I mean, we, now, now we might, I mean, if we're writing this epistle today, we could say a man can go to the moon and man can go thousands of feet under the ocean surface and man can cure this disease and that disease, but we can't contain the tongue. Some things never change, I guess. No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. He always takes the bad side. <laughs> it's also a good gift of God, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it sure is. Um, it's a good gift of God. Speech is a good gift of God. To be able to talk with one another takes us outside of what would otherwise be a, an existence of prison. You know, you'd be stuck within yourself if you could never communicate your ideas or have someone else communicate their ideas. So, of course, the tongue's a good thing and speech is a good thing. Um, James is reflecting on how that's been tainted and corrupted by sin. Tainted and corrupted by the fall. Deadly. Sorry? Deadly. Deadly, yes. Is there another verse where there's the, the, the tongue is connected to a heart and it's a wellspring and I, it, what's in the heart flows out of the man's heart? What's in his heart flows out. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Like a connect, I don't know if he makes the connection here, but. Well, he makes the sim very similar co uh, connection at the end of this when he's going to talk about uh, fresh water and salt water coming forth from the same spring, okay. which would be impossible, right? And that's what he's getting us to reflect on. I think uh, Mark 7, but I, I need to double check that. Um, Jesus says some similar things to what you were just reflecting on. So um, if you look at uh, Mark chapter 7, verse 14 and following. And he, that is Jesus, called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach, and it is expelled. Now, uh, Mark makes the side note here that Jesus has declared all foods clean, and that's the subtext of this. Because a Jew would say, well, no, there are things that you would eat that make you unclean. The Old Testament tells us all about those. 
So Mark makes the point that, look, the subtext of Jesus' words is that he's made all things clean. That's not the main point, of course. The main point is that what, what you, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you, but what comes out of your mouth. And that's what Jesus' next words are in verse 20. And Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. It's not what goes into the mouth, but what comes out of the mouth. So even if you eat, uh, dare to eat an inorganic food, it still can't uh, defile you, right? That's what comes out of your mouth that can defile you. So not at, not at all uh, unlike what James teaches here about uh, the dangers of the mouth. Um, but then also, as we're going to see at the end of this section, he's going to talk about, does a, he's going to ask rhetorically, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? And the answer would be no, that's impossible, right? And even if it did, it would end up being what? If you mix fresh and salt water, what are you actually going to have? Salt water. <laughs> and that's the point. So, uh, is that enough reflection on Jesus' words? Should we jump back to James? Okay, let's jump back to James. So, um, n verse 8, But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So we have to be very careful not to poison other people with our words, with our tongues. With it we bless our Lord and Father. That's true. And with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So we can recognize the wrongness of that. We can recognize too that remember it from this last Sunday what Jesus and the uh, lawyer, the, divine, the expert in the divine law are talking about. And they talk about the law as love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your uh, strength, with all your soul. And love your neighbor as yourself. That the two go together. If you truly love God with all your heart, you're going to love your neighbor as yourself, right? And now look what he's saying. With it, we bless our Father, and with it, we curse people. In other words, with it, we express our love to God, but then with it, we express our hatred for people. And he, ta and he talks about how this is... Uh, I'm sorry? Yes, right, who are made in the life. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening? Or wait, I'm sorry, I skipped something, didn't I? From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? And the answer is no, a fig tree bears figs. Not olives. So the idea is if you're, a, if you're a righteous person, then you ought to be bearing righteous words, not unrighteous words. Or a grapevine produces figs. No, a grapevine, its vocation is to produce grapes. So as a righteous person, your vocation is to produce righteous words, not 
unrighteous words. So because of who you are, this is how it should be. Then he says, neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Okay. Now that is, this is a preaching of the law. That's why I like, one of the reasons why I like James is when he preaches the law, he doesn't mince words and he doesn't mess around. It's the law in its full strength and its full sternness and its full wrath. And we realize how far, how fallen we are and how far away we ever are from actually being perfect or achieving perfection or goodness according to the law, right? Because we recognize that we are this anomaly that nature itself doesn't even have. Um, Nature itself does not even have a spring that brings forth salt and fresh water, but our mouths do. There's something not right with us. Fig trees produce figs, grapevines produce grapes, um, etc. They don't produce the opposite of what they are, something other than what they are, and yet that's exactly what our mouths do. So you see also then the argument is that we've fallen out of the ordering of God's creation, how he ordered us to be, how he created us to be. And our lips are now disordered if that makes sense. So again, James is showing us our sin in these passages and convicting us of sin, helping us to see that. Any questions on that section? So we continue in this state of, uh, uh, you know, uh, two uh, natures, right? We can flash back to anger and brackish water will flow forth but it's only by bathing our soul in God's word and our conscience being alert to that to confess our sin come back to have fresh water flow is that the uh, application here or what? yeah there's uh, I think there's kind of maybe two levels two ways we could look at this first hand there's, there's certainly an encouragement to uh produce more fresh water than salty to recognize that our lips are a deadly poison and therefore restrain them to realize that our words can do a lot of harm and to therefore use them wisely and carefully that's certainly there I think that, that James' main point is to show us that we cannot ever overcome these things by ourselves as long as we're in this body exactly yes it's James' way of saying what Paul says who will save me from this body of death I recognize that this is the way it is. But thanks be to God. But thanks be, yeah, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus, right? I so, well, so it's it's Christ who saves us, and that's that's what James is getting at too in his in his typical way, where he just doesn't beat you over the head with Jesus. But you know, go back to verse two and what we reflected on. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able also to bridle the whole body. That's only Jesus. And at the end of this section, James wants you to be astute enough, intelligent enough to come to the conclusion of this section and say, well, that's not me, but that is Jesus. He is the righteous man. And he is my only hope of salvation. So that's the way that James works. He shows you Christ. He shows you that you're not him. And he wants to keep that in your mind because that's our salvation. That's faith. That we look to Jesus, the righteous man, and forsake our own righteousness. I mean, all of that is exactly what Paul spells out for us in Romans. James just isn't going to spell it out, which I kind of love. You know, it's great. Figure it out. In a way, like, he speaks sort of in a veiled way. 
case. Yeah, you could make that case, or, sure. And if he was the brother of Jesus, Jesus often spoke. You're right. You're right. That's the parables, right? Yeah. Yeah, those parables are the same thing. Jesus doesn't just doesn't just tell you, look, folks, you're saved by grace through faith apart from works, right? Jesus tells the story of a man who is forgiven all his debts, gratis, no reason, unconditional, completely forgiven. And you listen to that story and you realize he's saying the same exact thing as St. Paul. He's just not saying it like St. Paul. Yeah, great point. Jesus, Jesus teaches his theology very often in stories and parables. Uh, and Paul teaches it more in the way that we in the, in the Western world are accustomed to. Um, just lay it out for me. Just shoot me straight and tell me what it is. You know. So I think we can appreciate the Spirit's wisdom in giving us all. All of the above. Yeah. It's interesting in the first chapter where he says, you know, be quick to listen and slow to speak. And it's been pointed out that we have two ears and one mouth. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. That's true, yeah. And then maybe you won't talk as much. Uh huh. Uh huh. Well, I wish, you know, it's, I mean, not that I'm somehow out from under uh, this wisdom myself. But I very often wish that pastors, I include myself in this, would spend more time listening to God's word and then restraining our mouths to speak only God's word than to fill your time and your ears with all the other nonsense that's in our mind. Right? I mean, have you ever, have you ever listened to a sermon maybe on the radio or uh, not a Lutheran sermon, of course. No, I'm joking. Maybe a Lutheran sermon. Listen to a sermon where it's like, 90% the nonsense that's in the pastor's mind and 10% the word of God. Yeah. That's the kind of guy that James wants to slap upside the head. And me too. Jokes. Yeah. Yeah. You know. I mean, it's, I mean, God created humor. There's a place for humor. It's not to be forbidden. But at the same time, boy, if every sermon is your time to stand up and get your jokes, and that's... I mean, ultimately what that is is that feeds the pastor's ego. Because he's getting the laughs and the kicks, and it's about him. That's really what it's about. Same with the self-indulgent stories. You know, I had no idea what I was going to say about this text, and then I saw my little girl playing with her kitty, and I thought, blah blah blah. You know, I mean, and maybe you've been tortured under sermons like that before. But that's the that's precisely the kind of thing where you wish that a pastor would bridle his own tongue, listen to God's word. And then speak that word, and yeah, in his own words, and and yeah, in a way that's dynamic and 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 applies to your context. Yeah, all of that, but much more time spending on God's word. Sometimes people ask me, why don't you Lutherans preach forty-five minutes? And it's like we sometimes specially focus those fifteen to twenty minutes to be like ninety or a hundred percent God's word to you. And whatever else incidental things might be there are there to like serve the flow of God's word, ideally. Um, so that you walk away from those 15, 20 minutes and you say, I just got blasted by God's word. You know, well, not blasted. That's a terrible word. Okay, I received God's, God's word, right? Sometimes it's blasting. Some, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, law, law and gospel. Gospel blasting, too. <laughs> That's not oxymoronic. Um, so, but that, but that's the point. Whereas, um, you know, if I've listened, I've listened to my share of forty-five minute 
hour and a, an hour long sermons, and by the time you're done with them, you're like, I got maybe five minutes that was God's word, and it was so diluted by all the other nonsense that I had to fight and focus to keep those five minutes. Well, gosh, the pastor could have saved everyone a lot of time. It's a fire hose instead of these misters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's blasting. Yeah, that's a good way to it. No, it is a good way. Because it's the word. Yeah. Which is the water coming out of the hose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so thanks for your point, Don. It's well taken that... Um, Two ears, we ought to spend more time listening. That's that's true for all of us, and less time speaking. It's especially true in the pastoral office, and that's one of the, that's one of James' chief reflections here as he begins this section, admonishing uh, not many Christians uh, to become teachers for that very reason. Okay. Yes, I think I think that's exactly right. In fact, I th- I think that if you if you really focus and study that section, at least this ha- this kind of happened for me, is it suddenly dawned on me that neither James nor Paul nor anyone else in the New Testament that I know of was writing a dogmatics textbook. And it, what I mean by that is sometimes we look at the scriptures as if they were a book of doctrines or a book of truths all lined up in a row that we just have to memorize these truths and know these truths and, um, and that's all there is to it. But in fact, they're not a, a, none of the books of the New Testament are just that, are just listing of truths and doctrines. They're always a speaking and a preaching to people. So it's always a law and gospel dynamic word from God to human beings through the pen, through the mouth of the apostle. So while there is dogma and doctrine there, no doubt about it, there is the application of that dogma and doctrine to the people that is of foremost importance. You see, James isn't just saying... Let's all gather together, friends, and talk about this uh, theoretical question of whether or not there's such a thing as faith without works. Now I'm going to do a little pontificating on it, and we'll all discuss. Not what James is doing, right? James is speaking to and preaching to a specific people in a specific set of circumstances. And as we read the text, their, their specific cer- set of circumstances is such that they are claiming to have faith, and the, their faith is their very excuse not to help their brothers and sisters in need. Not to help those in their own congregation who don't have proper clothing or don't have proper food. And they're essentially saying, I don't have to help them because I have faith. I don't have to reach out to them because Jesus has already done it all. Right? And, and James is pointing out the incompatibility of that view with the true gospel. So that's what that section's about. There's doctrine there, but that's not his main point is let's get this doctrine straight, guys. His main point is let's address this behavior that is this false belief that is overturning individual Christians and the church that Christ has put me as a shepherd over. That's Your James' main Yes, right. In James, in James' way of thinking about it, in James' way of speaking, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. For James, faith without works is dead faith, no faith. 
And I actually think Paul would totally agree with that. Yeah. Because when, when, Paul, when Paul, even when Paul talks about faith alone, it's, it's the old line, faith alone is what justifies us, but faith is never alone. Paul has in his mind a living faith, a faith that is active through love. It's just the faith itself that justifies. But that faith is, a, is an organic whole with love, faith and love together. Okay, um, now wisdom is this next section, and we've already heard him talk about wisdom. Remember, all the way back at the beginning. So you see that James is constantly weaving these themes throughout. But if you remember, all the way back in chapter 1, verse 5, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generally to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So... uh, here he's already mentioned wisdom. Now, where does he talk about wisdom from above? Um, it is in verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Remember we talked about the whole perfect gift, the whole from above. Anyway, both of these sections, I bring them because of that, because of that phrase from above and preceding the talk of wisdom because here in this next section James loops the two themes together for us weaves them together so look what he says in chapter 3 verse 13 now who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom okay Um, now jump forward with me to verse 17 for a moment but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. The harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So you see here how James has taken those two earlier themes of the whole or good gift that comes from above and wisdom, and he's combined them together, the wisdom from above. Now let's maybe just walk through this slowly, beginning with 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? And we all want to say, well, I am, right? Okay, then by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Which is a different ethos than, it's as if, it's as if here's the counterbalance to everything James has said. To his congregation that does not want to work. And he said, no work. Right? Uh, to his congregation that does not want to help the brothers and sisters in their midst, he says, no, help. Right? Now he says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness, the humility, the lowliness of wisdom. So here's like almost the corrective of, okay, I want you to be about good works, but I don't want you to be about good works in the way of beating your chest. Or sounding a horn before you do it, right? Or letting everyone know. Um, it's it's very much like what Jesus teaches when he says, um, "Do in secret, and your Father in heaven who sees in secret will reward you in secret." But don't do your works to be seen by men, right? It, that same teaching of Jesus here is put into James' own words. So by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So we want to do good works, 
but we want to do this in humility and meekness because that's actually what wisdom is. It's unwise to boast about your good works. Verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy, now this is the opposite of meekness, isn't it? Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Bitter jealousy is you look at someone else and the gifts they're getting, maybe the accolades and praise they're getting for the good works they do, and so you start to do your good works, not in the meekness of wisdom, but in the bombast and boasting that's going to bring you accolades and applause. And So here's the warning. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, I want to be better than everyone else. I want to be recognized as being better than everyone else. I want to be praised. Then he's saying, if you have these things, do not boast and be false to the truth. In other words, confess the truth about yourself, that you're a sinner, repent of these things, and seek to conduct yourself in the meekness of wisdom. It's James' way of saying, don't let your uh, right hand know what your left hand is doing. Or Maybe I've got the hands messed up. Um, but don't do your works to be shown uh, to other people in the sense of I want praise and accolades for this. Um, don't do your works um, so that you have praise and accolade of yourself. Right? Do your good works in meekness so that the Father will reward you. Okay? Then he just goes on to say, um, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Earthly, unspiritual, and demonic is that wisdom that serves selfish ambition and bitter jealousy and that makes one's conduct or good works uh, in competition with those of others. So he's saying that's not wisdom that comes from above, that's wisdom that comes from below. So it's actually demonic to want to be good in, and then compare yourself to others who aren't so good. Or to want to be good in order to get praise and accolades of men. So he says that this is earthly wisdom, unspiritual wisdom, demonic wisdom. Then in verse 16, he continues, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. All in the name of doing what's good. Verse 17, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace, by those who make peace. So he said that this wisdom in verse 15, it's not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, spiritual, demonic. That's the wisdom from below. The wisdom from above, we would say, is the opposite. We would say it's heavenly, it's spiritual, and it's Christ. He is the wisdom from above. And we reflected on that in chapter 1. He is the wisdom from above, and he is the whole or perfect gift from above. And as we read this description, the wisdom from above is, when we read pure, peaceable, gentle, we recognize that this is a description of, of the fruits of the Spirit and certainly of Christ. In fact, he's the only man who exhibits 
the wisdom from above. He's the wisdom from above incarnate, we would say, enfleshed, right? So again, James, in his way, leads us to reflect on Christ. And yet here he also, though, puts forward Christ um, to show us as he is, so we also want to be or desire to be. So he sets before us uh, to consider that the wisdom from above is pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So um, it's not to say that there isn't a time to contend for the faith, or to rebuke or exhort those who teach contrary to the faith. Um, Jesus said, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. So there's a time to do battle. Paul says, take up the whole armor of God and the sword of the Spirit, uh, which is the word of God. So there, it's not as if James is saying, look, folks, the whole secret is just be nice and agreeable. Right? not what James is saying. All those other things are taught in the scripture, but James is saying here that the wisdom from above is pure and it's peaceable. That's its nature, that's its essence. Will it go to war? Will it fight? Yeah, against the wisdom that is earthly and unspiritual and demonic. Yeah, it'll war against that. But in its essence, it's peaceable. It's gentle, it's open to reason. It's full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial. That's been a big thing with James, hasn't it? Impartiality, not, not against the rich or the poor. Um, and sincere. And then here we reflect on Jesus' uh, words too. Blessed are the peacemakers, right? And here James says the same thing. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So what is the message? Well, we want to be, insofar as we can be, we want to be all of these things. And yet if the earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom of the earth confronts and contends and wars against these things, then we turn and do battle with that and those forces. As Paul says, we war not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of darkness. Okay? This term self-esteem, I, I seem to have been brought up in a parental generation, which that seemed to be the focus, you know, Mary, you can do whatever you want, you know, you're, you're a, you're special, you know, etc. And it seems to be feeding into the wisdom from the earth. Uh, and I've heard the term over the years, we should raise our children with Christ esteem. And I don't know what that means, the Christ esteem versus uh, self-esteem, but uh, I assume it's just we take the self out of it and put Christ into it. But uh, could you comment a little bit on this? And uh, as parents, how, you know, other than praying and, and reading God's word to our children, what, what is the process that is a good parenting? Yeah, we... Um I, I don't know, my generation was raised being told you can do whatever you want to do. That's not true. It's not on the cards for me to be a uh, rocket scientist. It's not on the cards for me to be an NBA basketball player. Sorry. 
no matter how much I wanted it, no matter how much I applied myself, I ain't in the cards. So I think it starts with a, with a small fib that we tell. And it's a good intention fib that we tell kids. But I think we'd do much better to speak to them accurately. These are the things that God is calling you to do. Okay? He has given you certain gifts and talents. He's calling you to nurture those gifts and talents and use them in service to other people and service to Him. Um, you don't get to choose your gifts and talents. He chooses them for you. Uh, take care of them. Be a good steward of them. Um, he calls you and desires you to be a good son and daughter soon enough to be a good husband and wife and, uh, or a good uh, mother and father when that comes around. Those are things that he's calling you, that he's set out, that he's ordered, aspire to be these things. Train our kids from the earliest age to think of these, these things because these are the offices that God has given to human beings. And I think that that makes it more real and uh, it constitutes a more accurate... I think sometimes part of the reason why our kids are so conflicted and don't know what they want to do, you know, until they're like 37 or something like that, and they're living in the basement again, um, is, is uh, because we've trained them, that they can, we've told them from birth that they can be anything they want to be, and so they've never, I mean, that's so open-ended. What do you want to be? I don't know what I want to be. I can be anything. That's a lot of things to explore. I could spend a lifetime just thinking about it. Maybe I will, right? Um, inst instead of very concretely helping each kid find the gifts and talents God has given you. Look, I appreciate your effort in English. That B means the world because I know that English isn't your gig and you applied yourself and you worked and you got it. Math, on the other hand, was easy for you. You didn't even work and you got an A in calculus. God has gifted you in, in math. You need to study that. You need to apply that. You know, this summer I'm gonna, we're going to go to a math camp together and we're going to you know, look at that. I don't know if there's such a thing as a math camp. Obviously I wasn't into math. But um, <laughs> I think as a pastor you can't be. Um, I'm just joking. The, uh, but, but the idea is nurturing and growing kids into what, what the talents are that God's given them. Then when it comes time to a career, you know, choose something that God has gifted you in. Well, what does God gift me? And that narrows it way down all of a sudden. And that makes it real and tangible. And it also dovetails maybe with what I enjoy because we tend to enjoy the things that we're good at, right? Because it feels good to be good at something. So um, I think that's much more helpful for guiding kids in the way of vocation. Um, and when we say uh, also uh, my generation was taught almost all of the movies we watched, the Disney movies, the whole theme was believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. And all the, all the athletes were telling us, believe in yourself. Well, from a theological standpoint, that's like the most obvious idolatry there is. Adam and Eve wanted to be as God. That's why they sinned in the first place. So if I'm going to believe in someone, I want to believe and trust in God, not me. And so I think we fill kids with that false uh, pseudo-religion. It's just the... the religion de jour of America is believe in yourself. Well, nonsense. Believe in God. Work hard? Yeah. Apply yourself? Yeah. Be tenacious? Yeah. Hold on to a goal despite all adversity? Yeah. But that's not believing in yourself. That's just doing all those things. Believe in God. That way, even if all those things don't work out and you find yourself sitting on a street corner one day, you still have God. And you're not still looking inside yourself, the false God that's let you down. So I think that's yet another aspect. And the whole self-esteem, Christ-esteem, you know, I don't, 
I think it's true in this respect. You don't, we all want to find self-worth amongst other people or in our own eyes. And I think, just humanly speaking, a certain amount of that is absolutely necessary. It's necessary to have people around us who love us, who care for us, who respect us. God built us and made us to be in community with one another. It's also right for you to have a certain amount of self-esteem in the sense that God gave you gifts. And that those gifts are something to be proud of and happy about and to use in the service of others. And if we wallow in this idea of, well, I'm giftless and cursed and always second best and never good enough, at some point in time that becomes a despising of the gifts that God has given you. You see? So rather than saying, well, we shouldn't have self-esteem at all or we shouldn't care what other people at all think, which is kind of the Christian knee-jerk reaction, I think that it goes too far. You end up denying the good things that God has given you or the people that God has put in your life around you. Now, all that to be said, ultimately, we do want to find our sense of self-worth and value ultimately in God's love for us and sending his own son to die for me. And that's ultimately where it goes. So that if there are times in my life where I don't think much of myself, well, I need to let God be God. And he does think more of me than I think of me. Or he does think more of me than my family and friends think of me. The psalmists even say that, right? As they lament that their whole families have turned against them, that their friends have turned against them, that everyone's turned against them, but God presumably hasn't. And they find their grounding there in him. So anyway, um, I would say, yes, Christ's esteem is the essential thing and, the, and maybe the best thing but I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say self-esteem or what other people think doesn't matter because that would be to deny creation itself, the good gifts that God's written into creation. Okay, we're at time, so let's pick up next week with um, just chapter 4. We have chapter 4 and 5, so we move through all of chapter 3. That means probably two more weeks on James, hopefully, and we'll be out. Yes? 